Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words, I welcome you once again to the Time of Monsters podcast, um, offered by The Nation magazine and available wherever you can listen to podcasts. Uh, the There's a lot of talk these days about the extreme right um, and even some talk about the extreme left, but nobody ever talks about the extreme center, uh, which is in some ways, uh, the most perilous flow of all, uh, the people who actually have power and who are preventing us from dealing with the existential threats that humanity faces. Um, one person who is keeping an eye on the centrist is um, my guest for this week, Luke Savage. Uh, he's a staff writer at Jacobin, um, and he does the Michael and Us podcast, uh, which is a wide-ranging survey of culture, which I highly recommend. Um, and he has a new book out from uh, Or Books called The Dead Center, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History. Um, now, actually, uh, maybe that's a good way to start this, the after the end of history, uh, because I actually saw, um, I don't feel this uh, right-wing um, sort of crank uh, who's on Substack, uh, Richard Hanana, uh, if that's his pron <laughs> the pronunciation of his name, but he's a kind of, um, uh, but he actually had a big long post saying um, uh, that uh, actually, you know, uh, the uh, uh, dire situation of the Russia in uh, the Ukraine war and uh, China's handling of COVID uh, their COVID zero policy proves that Fukuyama was right, that there is actually no alternative <laughs> to liberal democracy. Uh, which, I mean, I mean, maybe I, I actually think that that might be a good kind of place to start because I, I feel like in some ways Fukuyama, um, you know, is perhaps the great theorist of this sort of moment. Uh, and like, like, did history come to an end? Uh, was there an attempt to revive <laughs> history? So, so, so can you maybe set the stage? What, what is the... Uh, what is this era we're talking about? Well, I suppose a better title for the book, or I should say a better subtitle would have been, you know, after, or it, you know, it would have been at the end of the end of history or something like that. Um, uh, but, you know, that would have obviously been a, a bit too convoluted. I mean, uh, you know, in saying, uh, you know, including the words, uh, you know, after the end of history in the uh, subtitle of my book, you know, my intention wasn't to say that, you know, the liberal order is, uh, you know, completely uh, kaput. I mean, I think the center is dead in a different sense, um, which is that uh, it's simply not credible um, and it's not functioning in the way that um, it's kind of architects in the 1990s, uh, you know, said that it would. I mean, talking about uh, the end of history, uh, you know, I'm not speaking uh, strictly of Fukuyama here, but, you know, more, speaking more generally of how that kind of phrase entered the lexicon in the 1990s and what it meant to people. Um, you know, it wasn't just that there's no alternative to liberal democracy. It was that this is actually going to work very well, right? <laughs> that this model 
uh, is going to give us, you know, fairly uh, fairly persistent economic growth. Um, we may even uh, escape the uh, you know capitalist business cycle as it's been uh, you know known uh, you know for the, for the past uh, hundred years or so. Uh, you know, I think it was the new Labour government at one point announced that you know we were going to see the end of boom and bust. You know, the the idea was that all this had been figure out every country was going to become a sort of pluralist liberal democracy. And, um, you know, countries like the United States uh, were obviously going to be the, and the United States in particular, were obviously going to be the, the leaders and vanguards of that uh, order. And what we saw is that, you know, not only, uh, you know, was that not the case, um, but I mean, the, the party only lasted for, I mean, depending on when you really begin the story in the 1990s, I mean, I don't even think it got, 20 years. I mean, you know, it got, it, it, it had, the party was, uh, the, the party was less long than, you know, Keynesianism was, or, you know, the, uh, the social democratic welfare state after the second world war had a better run than the, uh, you know, end of history in the 1990s than all that uh, came with it. Um, I had not heard of the conservative commentator you're, you're talking about, but um, to that thesis, I guess my reply would be, okay, well, what about the United States' handling of COVID? What about, what about the fact that Donald Trump, uh, you know, won the 2016 presidential election and, you know, were it not for a few thousand votes in a few states, uh, would have won the 2020 election as well? I mean, uh, my book is in many ways, I think, an attempt to chronicle and, and kind of, um, study as a somewhat exotic artifact, you know, what it means when a political order like the current, uh, you know, liberal democratic one remains entrenched, but it's kind of lost the original uh, impetus that inspired it and the sense of confidence that came with that. So what happens when you have uh, something that at this point is basically a small C conservative uh, philosophy, um, but it still has all of the sort of the reflexes of a project that is about change and progress and, and that kind of thing. Um, and the, the disjuncture between that and what I think is basically a small C conservative approach to doing politics um, comes out in so many ways, uh, you know, which are often very, very strange. And, uh, you know, that's something I'm trying to capture in the book. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I wanted to stick with this point a little bit about the sort of historical trajectory, um, because I, I think that it's, it's a good way to get at the thesis. Um, I mean, the book is a sort of, you know, uh, has a lot of essays on different figures, but there's this overall architecture. Um, and really, I think the one key thing is that the sort of the 1990s was the uh, uh, golden age of this sort of centrism uh, with um, Clinton in the White House and uh, Tony Blair in uh, England. And that at that point, it was a very robust and aggressive and confident agenda that um, these were people who really thought they had figured out something uh, and were gonna pursue it uh, and both at home and abroad, uh, both in terms of you know, the, um, the uh, uh, reform, um, and streamlining of the welfare state, uh, and then at abroad with um, uh, sort of uh, humanitarian warfare and the sort of you know the um, uh, the transformation of the sort of idea of uh, um, uh, 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 
American global hegemony from its Cold War roots um, in a post-Cold War world, where it suddenly becomes this is well, this is the inter liberal international order, and the United States is the indispensable nation. So, um, uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say, you know, like that that vision of the world has met uh, uh, <laughs> with some shocks. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, do you want to like uh, you've alluded to them, but let's just run through like what are the kind of challenges that it sort of faced? Well, I mean, there are, uh, there are a whole bunch. I mean, it depends uh, kind of, you know, I, th I think there's a, there's a problem of scale here because the challenges run from the, uh, I mean, they, they run from the, the you know, the, the, the biggest and kind of most uh, structural kind of things to, um, I mean, I think even just much more immediate and, and in some ways uh, more, more trivial things. I mean, I think sort of, um, a big beginning with the first of those two categories. I mean, the uh, a lot of the qualitative assumptions that people had about um, uh, economics and politics in the 1990s have just not been borne out. And we talked about a few of these already. I mean, the uh, a belief in this kind of uh, just perpetual growth and kind of uninterrupted, um, you know, uh, business cycle, um, you know, that kind of thing, uh, a belief that I think the the electoral formulas of the 1990s, whether, you know, we're talking about new labor or, or what were called the new Democrats, the Atari Democrats in the United States, um, sort of the Clintonites, um, there was a belief that these formulas could just be repeated forever, because this is what the world was now, you know, you can just you get a charismatic uh, centrist of some kind, who basically, you uh, puts a, a smiley face on, um, you know, tells a compelling story about, um, you know, a, a trajectory that's pretty much going to be taken as axiomatic, regardless of who uh, is officially, uh, you know, managing it or, or governing it. Um, you know, and uh, th those things have come out, uh, those things have been undone, I should say, and they've unraveled in various ways and at various paces. But I mean, I think the financial crisis was obviously a, a hammer blow uh, to, 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 uh, the liberal order uh, for a number of reasons, not just because of, uh, you know, so much of the uh, roots of it uh, go back to Clintonism and they go back to the kind of market fanaticism, the mania for deregulation and things like that, um, but also because of how uh, a very popular, then very popular uh, and, you know, skilled Democratic president handled or rather decided not to handle um, the crisis. I mean, there was uh, such a kind of dogmatism in the Obama administration about, um, you know, not the stimulus can't be too big. You know, we can't, we, we, we absolutely should not be using this moment to um, bring in a second new deal or anything like that. This is a bit of a digression, but um, I never tire of bringing up. Um, uh, there was a, a an op-ed that I, I feel few, few remember uh, besides myself, but um Several weeks into the Obama presidency, I mean, certainly within Obama's first hundred days, David Brooks wrote a column where he basically said, you know, tax and spend liberalism is back. Um, and the Obama White House read this and were very, uh, they were very upset about this. They did not want to, they did not want, uh, you know, daddy David Brooks to think uh, ill of them. So they sent him a message um, and, uh, you know, he published a follow-up column where he said, well, they've actually assured me that, uh, you know, they fully accept the Reaganite consensus and, you know, they understand the need for entitlement reform, meaning, you know, cuts, uh, things like that. Um, 
and uh, yeah, basically they're not out to uh, they're they're not out to do any of that uh, that 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 change stuff. Um, so I mean, you know, that's again a bit of a, a bit of a digression. I just wanted to get it, that in there, but I think it's emblematic of um, you know a, a deeper crisis. There is. Uh, there was once a project here, perhaps it was, you know, a bad and counterproductive one, but, it, you know, there was a kind of um, a zealotry in the 1990s that you really see with figures like Clinton and Blair and Schroeder in, in Germany and, and a few others. Um, and I think by the time you get to Obama, um, who's, you know, a more gifted politician, I think, than uh, Bill Clinton, um, you know, you have, uh, you know, because of Obama, you have uh, you know, you have this kind of great, uh, this great spectacle in, in, you know, 2008 and this very exciting campaign, which lots of people, including myself, um, you know, were, were very excited about. Um, but I mean, there, there is just warmed over Clintonism uh, lingering behind it. Um, and then over the subsequent kind of 10 or 12 years, um, you know, more, uh, more and more of these uh, kind of assumptions that, that uh, some people had held in the 1990s are unraveled as well. So, uh, who can forget after Obama's election in 2008, um, you know, this sort of demographics or destiny uh, stuff, the idea that the Republican Party was going to have to um, operate within a, a consensus that liberals were now setting out. They were going to have to, you know, we were going to be getting small government solutions to climate change. You know, that was going to be the future of Republicanism. Uh, it was going to be much more pluralist and, and multicultural. Um, um, and then you had the, the midterm elections in 2010 and, and you had the uh, over the next six years before Trump's election, the Democrats just losing constantly uh, down ballot. Um, you had the Brexit vote. Um, you know, there were there were uh, so many things that happened that just, uh, you know, uh, have have uh, eliminated any sense of kind of uh, confidence or, or forward momentum that uh, this order once had, which, you know, as I said, I think only, you know, th those things only lasted for a, a very brief uh Time, which is which is important uh, given the the level of of confidence that is uh, suggested by a phrase like the end of history. I mean, I think some people really did allow themselves to believe that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true, and I think I mean uh, the narrative that you sort of outlined sort of helps explain um, one thing, which is very curious, which is the uh, extreme conservatism that one sees among a certain set of. Uh, Gen X um, uh, centrist. I, I'm thinking of someone like um, Matthew Iglesias, where like they yeah. had the experience, they had sort of really come of age um, uh, in that 1990s moment and have a very strong memory of it. And that is, it's so formative. And the, the, there's a real politics that's uh, an attempt to go back to that, uh, despite the ways in which that politics has unraveled. Um, and I just want to hit on that. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that digression about the David Brooks and Obama, because I think one way to think about that centrism is that it's an attempt to sort of curate political discourse and in some ways to create a um, type of political discourse where we, uh, you know, the center left and the center right can be in conversation and that they dominate. And you know, Obama loved that. He loved to talk to David Brooks and Brett Stevens and people like uh, of that um, uh, ilk. Uh, the sort of the respectable conservatives. Um, and um, in some ways, I think 
there's much that can be sort of said about that, but it also led to a kind of blindness about the actual nature of the right, because it, I mean, David Brooks is a conservative of the sort that, you know, you could introduce to New York Times readers, but, you know, like outside that charmed circle, there's like a, a much uh, um, uh, more radical right of a figure, someone like Pat Buchanan. Like, I can't imagine Obama and Pat Buchanan sort of <laughs> sitting that together. But as it turned out, like Pat Buchanan was like a much more influential figure uh, than David Brooks. I was like in the, the actual issues that, uh, uh, Buchanan hit on, especially of immigration uh, and trade, and sort of also um, uh, uh, a setting aside of uh, uh, liberal internationalist norms uh, for more aggressive, robustly unilateral foreign policy. I mean, those all like fed into Trumpism. And I, I think in some ways, like, um, uh, it, it, can the dead center that we're talking about, the spectrum that runs from Obama to Brooks, are they even able to see like outside their their like you know uh, country club? Are they able to see the world outside of that space? It's a it's a very interesting uh, it's a very interesting question and and yeah I've I've spent uh, an inordinate amount of time thinking about this sort of this bipartisan space that you describe and what it is that people find so uh, attractive about it, or I should say people within it. I mean I think that it. It was uh, it was believed by a lot of the people in it to have a sort of popular buy-in, um, you know, before 2016. And 2016, among other, you know, it shattered many things. But one of them, I think, was the idea that uh, this kind of bipartisan sphere uh, had some kind of, you know, there was some great craving in the country for uh, a politics that was, you know, could be found at some Archimedean point between, yeah, I don't know, David Brooks and Matt Iglesias or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, the, the Hillary Clinton campaign very much was the, I mean, it, I think, quite explicitly positioned itself as the, uh, you know, tribune uh, of, of that uh, constituency, and it, and you know, it all, it all, uh, it all came apart. Uh, there, there is, I mean, I guess one essay in the book that deals uh, directly with conservatism um, and touches on uh, a number of things that uh, that 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 uh, you know you brought up in your question it's actually uh, well I suppose actually there's two there's one about David Brooks as well but that's not the one I was going to bring up um, there's a there's an essay on the never Trump uh, movement and you know the never Trump movement has been a fascinating phenomenon there was a book I don't know how widely it got uh, it got read but it was called I think never Trump revolt of the conservative elites now the, the guys that wrote that book are sympathetic to the never Trumpers in a way that I am I am not myself, um, but they did author a very serious study um, of different facets of what's called the conservative movement and how they reacted to uh, to Donald Trump. And one of the things that they noted was that um, you know people's reactions to Donald Trump, uh, you know, there were different uh, incentive structures in place depending on what your location within uh, you know, the professional conservatism was. And one of the groups that reacted most fiercely to Donald Trump were the public intellectuals. And the reason for this, um, you know, is, is pretty straightforward. The function of most conservative public intellectuals, um, you know, or traditionally, you know, that you might find in somewhere like National Review, um, that's the most obvious place, um, you know, it is very much to present conservatism, as you said, Jeet, uh, in a way that is, uh, you know, digestible by by liberals. You know, uh, it's it's uh, conservatism as kind of this 
you know, high-minded, very cerebral uh, tradition that goes back a long way that is, um, you know, very, very somber, uh, you know, it's, it's against the passions being inflamed and et cetera. And you can see why something like that would be attractive just aesthetically to someone like Barack Obama or to the kinds of, you know, people uh, who often, you know, who, who, who often populate the halls of power in somewhere like Washington. But I mean, it's just not. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Uh, that is not what the history of conservatism is. It's not what the history of American conservatism especially is. Um, and, you know, uh, I think uh, 2016 again showed that there was, there had been a belief, I think, that there was some relationship, some real like nexus binding the David Brooks's of this world, uh, the editorial board at the National Review uh, to the rank and file of the Republican Party, to the um, you know, the the angry uh, white suburbanites who often vote in Republican primaries and things like that, um, such that, uh, you know, they were going to be able to anoint, you know, Jeb Bush or somebody like that uh, as, you know, they were just going to, they're going to tell the base, it's okay, Jeb Bush is, you know, uh, he's, he's, he's fine, he's one of us. And, um, you know, uh, with $200 million of, you know, from the I don't know, oil and real estate uh, on top of it, that was going to be a winning package. And well, turned out, turned out it wasn't. Um, <laughs> not quite sure how to put a period on that answer or if I really answered your question. Yeah, no, no, no. I know. I, I, I think that's right. I think that there's a kind of, uh, uh, I, I mean, I think on the uh, right wing side, I think the events of the last few years have really shown the disconnect between that very tiny conservative elite and the people that they prefer to speak with. Um, and what's fascinating to me, and I was thinking of the, your chapter on the Never Trump people, is that um, the uh, liberals of the of the uh, the center liberals continue to want to prop that up. They continue to want to pretend that there is a kind of Never Trump constituency uh, that is significant factor in politics and that this is the true conservatism. One sees it in many ways um, in the sort of you know, celebrations of um, uh, Liz Cheney uh, and in, um, uh, you know, like uh, Joe Biden's distinctions that he makes between MAGA Republicans and Republicans. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Like, you know, like if one looks at like, you know, polling of like what Republicans think, well, they're all mega Republicans in a sense. Like, you do, so so, so it, it is a kind of um, an, an attempt to create a kind of fictional reality where David Brooks is a kind of significant conservative voice uh, and where the never Trump people are a, a big faction because liberalism in some ways, um, liberalism requires this kind of sort of uh, center left, a center right that is like, you know, respectable and engaged, uh, able to engage with. Um, do you want to say something on that? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I think that this is a, a, a major qualitative difference between uh, liberalism and, and, and conservatism, at least as they're constituted today, because, um, you know, in, in what you were saying, I, I uh, was thinking about, I mean, I think she said this a number of times, but Nancy Pelosi, uh, 
you know, uh, for a time every few months was coming out and making a statement along the lines of, you know, this country needs a strong Republican Party. Now, imagine Mitch McConnell saying the same thing. Uh, or, or do, imagine Donald Trump. I mean, you, you can't. I mean, you can't. I mean, they, they just wouldn't. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as you said, I mean, the, the polling really shows that, I mean, whether Donald Trump is the Republican nominee in 2024 or not, I mean, Trumpism is so obviously the lingua franca of American conservatism now. I mean, it's just that is what um, that is what American conservatism is. And I mean, the extent to which um, Trumpism is even fundamentally a break or rupture from conservatism uh that came before it i think is is i think that's that's highly debatable uh in many ways um and yet as you said there are just these persistent efforts by liberals to carve out this more respectable constituency and uh you know very kind of passionately cheer for it like you know like we're all we're all supposed to get invested in whether you know, Liz Cheney wins a primary, you know, and this is this is like this is now our, our cause, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting the incident exactly. But there was um, uh, there was something that happened in 2016 where I mean, this may be too unspecific to mention where a whole bunch of uh, liberals and Democrats, I think, who were sort of aligned with Hillary Clinton, were all giving money to like some local uh state Republican Party or something like that. I'm forgetting yeah, what North the incident. Carolina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some vandalism of a uh, uh, Republican Party uh, uh, in North Carolina. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea was that, you know, we should give money. Um, and <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's such an interesting thing because um, I mean, it seems like if you want to demobilize your own people, if you want to like demobilize uh, um, the sort of uh, grassroots Democrats, the way you would do that is to say, well, you know, we're best friends with like uh, the Cheney family, uh, David Brooks, and, you know, we can all get together at Aspen for the Atlantic Monthly uh, uh, Conference and discuss, you know, what needs to be done to America. I mean, if that's what you're presenting, like, um, it seems to do two things. One of which is that it further, um, it, uh, it's a good way to um, incite a populist all across the spectrum. Because if you're a Republican, you're looking at this like, well, this this just feeds into Donald Trump's um, rhino narrative, right? Like, well, these are the rhinos. This is why you know we're not getting what we want because there's like these uh, uh, this cohort elite um, a common um, uh, conspiracy that uh, includes people who call themselves Republicans. And, but also I think like, if you're like an ordinary Democrat, I, I can just imagine, I would imagine that this is like, kind of like demoralizing because it's like, well, is that what you're offering? Like, you know, like uh, it, it seems such a weird way to do politics. And this is another qualitative difference between the two parties is that the uh, Republican party in a sense fears its base or it's, I mean, it's compelled to because its base is, uh, has been empowered through, you know, in various ways, but I mean, you know, particularly through, I mean, to, again, depends on where you begin the story. But um, since we were talking about the 1990s, I mean, through, um, you know, th through uh, kind of outlets like, you know, I mean, Rush Limbaugh's outfit and things like that. Um, there are all kinds of, uh, you know, populist mechanisms, if you want, whereby the Republican Party um, or the Republican base can exert itself over the party structures. And, you know, we shouldn't, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I mean, the Republican Party is not some kind of great grassroots democracy. And of course, the whole thing is greased by, um, you know, money from, 
uh, you know, from, from plutocrats. But, uh, but nevertheless, there is a dynamic that I think is very different from what you find on, you know, what's, what's called the American center left, um, where I think, you know, and there are exceptions here, I'm speaking generally, but, you know, the, the, I think broadly speaking, the institutions of American liberalism, the mainstream ones, tend to view their role and tend to practice their role um, much more uh, in terms of, you know, managing the base, managing its expectations. Um, you know, it's much more, much more likely to kind of represent uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, choosing a compromise presidential candidate or whatever as some kind of very high-minded uh, and noble act. You know, it's, it, I feel like the, the institutions of, uh, you know, the, the, the centrist media and the liberal media are much more likely um, to kind of try to encourage uh, people to think more like pundits. So when you go to vote in a primary or something, uh, you're not supposed to think, uh, okay, well, candidate X um, is in line with my preferences and my values, so I'm going to go vote for them. You're supposed to think, well, um, I don't really agree with candidate Y. I think they're kind of boring and you know, and milk toast, and um, and they're you know, uh, the pharmaceutical industry seems to be giving them a lot of uh, warm attention. On the other hand, uh, you know, hey, we got to win those. Uh, you know, what about the what about the uh, conservative voters in the suburbs? And so I'm actually uh, casting a high-minded, noble vote by going to vote for this person that I don't actually like. I think that sort of line of uh, reasoning is something you're much more likely to find uh, on the kind of so-called center-left of the spectrum, as opposed to right-wing media, which is much more about. Uh, you know, stoking the base and and um, you know, kind of reflecting its uh, its worst and 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 most kind of malignant tendencies, and that's how you get a contest uh, where on the one side you have Donald Trump and on the other side you have Hillary Clinton. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I think one way to conceptualize this is to think that on the right wing side you have plutocrats who think it's in their best interest to incite the base as much as possible. That I think uh, people like the Koch brothers or uh, Rupert Burdock have found that it's um, profitable, both in media terms, in terms of getting an audience, but also in terms of getting what they actually want, you know, like out of government to have a very incited um, base. Whereas on the democratic side, uh, to the, um, uh, the big money sees uh, its role as sort of plac uh, keeping the base under control, as you say. Uh, and the only way to break, and that uh, almost seems like kind of natural, that obviously um, it, it's a contest uh, between two uh, forms of money, uh, uh, one um, that, you know, seeks kind of like a more radical change in deregulation, one that is invested in the status quo. And the only way to break that, and I think that's why the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 and some of the um, uh, more left-wing campaigns since then, you know, is to find other uh, uh, sources, um, uh, ways to finance campaigns, and also to um, have candidates that can uh, short circuit the uh, the media structure that, uh, as I think you rightly point out, on the Democrat on the uh, center left side is very much committed towards uh, status quo candidates. So, do you want to talk a bit about that? I mean, I, it seems like like if the, this is a narrative that we're kind of like putting together, um, like the Sanders campaign of 2016 uh, and 2020, like they kind of remained very significant events in trying to break this kind of you know death spiral of America. Yeah, I think I, I think so too. And I mean, they showed uh, how much, you know, in, in, in both cases, I think uh, 
you know, how, uh, I mean, they were they were received in, in a way that I think, you know, it was on a much larger scale than anyone expected. I mean, particularly in 2016, um, I mean, I think in 2020, there was, you know, a story about, you know, how Bernie was going to be a spent force. And then, you know, he came pretty, pretty close once again to winning the damn thing. Um, but, you know, in 2016, I mean, Bernie really was supposed to get, you know, one or two percent of the vote and drop out in the, you know, after the Iowa caucuses. That's what was supposed to happen. Um, and it turned out that, you know, actually, uh, you know, the, the kind the kind of campaign that he ran, uh, you know, had a you know, there was a tremendous amount of support uh, behind those policies and also behind that way of doing politics. I mean, just behind, um, you know, a politics that. Uh, you know, eschewed all this uh, nonsense about bipartisanship that was willing to name enemies uh, or, or, you know, name adversaries at least, um, and, you know, uh, openly confront um, capital, openly confront uh, campaign, you know, big campaign donors and that kind of thing. And also, and I think this is really important and, and relevant to uh, a lot of what we've been talking about, was willing to indict uh was willing to indict both major parties in a sense. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, was running obviously uh, against the right in, uh, you know, both his campaigns, but he was also uh, running against the Democratic establishment. And he often, you know, was willing to name it as such. And, uh, you know, I think that was a uh, I think that was highly significant. And, uh, you know, we saw both times how much traction Bernie got, how he was able to uh, you know, it turns out you actually can finance a national campaign very effectively um, through small donors. You you can actually go toe to toe with the kinds of people who are more likely to donate to a, you know, Pete Buttigieg or a, or a Joe Biden or a Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, those things uh, those things work. So uh, you know, obviously uh, Bernie was not successful in either of those campaigns, so he did come uh, awfully close. And I think that uh, the model uh, that he is. Uh, you know, pioneered or, or certainly kind of uh, popularized is, uh, you know, is one that will uh, still, it will continue to be viable in the future and possibly even more viable um, because, you know, I'm not an accelerationist. I don't hope things get worse, but um, I suspect that they will. And I suspect that the appetite for uh, a transformative uh, kind of politics that is uh, willing to kind of openly confront um, this system and all of the things that are undergirding it, I think the appetite for, for that is only going to grow. Yeah, no, I, I, th I think that's right. And perhaps uh, a final note, uh, I mean, that would be a good note to end on, although I want to say a final note, because it's in your book, is the um, uh, one reason why the dead center seems like dead, even though it's in power, um, is that I, I'm not quite sure it's able to replicate itself like enable uh, in terms of younger candidates that there has been, you know, to some degree, uh, I guess here in Canada and in France, one does get the younger figures like Trudeau and Macron. But I mean, like in the United States, I think it's quite striking that like, you know, um, attempts to create a younger, uh, the, you know, the next Obama, um, you know, uh, have been, sort of stillbirth, like in terms of, you mentioned Buttigieg, uh, I'd also mentioned uh, Beto O'Rourke. Do you want to say something about that? Like, I, I think that that might, that's a significant clue as to where things might be going. Yes, I mean, so the longest section of the book uh, is the one which, you know, deals with, uh, you know, basically character studies of, of individual personalities. And they're not all from the 2020 Democratic primaries, though a lot of the essays were, uh, were, were written then. And so, yeah, there's an essay on Buttigieg. There's one on um, Beto O'Rourke, who, you know, 
there's all kinds of people we can talk about here, but I think the O'Rourke campaign was a really interesting, particularly interesting um, and revealing case study of um, you know what what you're talking about. I mean, those primaries, uh, looking back on them, I really see them as uh, you know American liberalism's attempts to uh, kind of kick the tires and just you know have another charismatic centrist who um, you know we were all going to be told was was the next Robert Kennedy or whatever, you know, that was the, that was something that was said about O'Rourke, um, you know, the next, you know, Obama, Clinton, and, and, you know, your favorite Kennedy rolled into one or, or whatever. Um, and the O'Rourke campaign was a particularly striking uh, failure of that idea. Um, I think the primaries in general were a failure of it um, because ultimately the, the kind of most conservative candidate who was, uh, you know, or most conservative major candidate who was, just a democratic politician that had been around since the 1970s, you know, he won. And, and Biden was not the uh, preference, I think, of a lot of the uh, people who work behind the scenes uh, to, you know, get candidates into these primaries. Um, so, you know, the O'Rourke campaign was incredible because, you know, he had the uh, the big interview with Oprah in Times Square, you know, he'd come off, he had this fandom from his, uh, you know, near miss against the, uh, the loathsome Ted Cruz, um, in, in Texas, in the Senate race there. Um, and he had this big cover on Vanity Fair, which I think was emblazoned with those now pretty infamous words about, you know, I, I'm just born to be in it or, or whatever. Um, and I think by the time the Vanity Fair cover had even come out, uh, you know, he, he'd already, like, he'd already peaked and was already beginning to dip. Um, and so in a matter of, I mean, it might have been as little as two months, he went from uh, you know, the next, literally the next Robert Kennedy, the cover of Vanity Fair, live interview with Oprah Winfrey in Times Square to, um, you know, swearing in debates to try to generate headlines. I mean, just dipping in the polls and, um, you know, dropped out well before Iowa. And I think in a number of ways, uh, you know, all these, all these campaigns were trying to replicate uh, some kind of formula that you could associate with an Obama or a Clinton. That's that's the that's the mode that um, you know America's uh, centrist. That's the the only mode they really have. It's the only register they have is a kind of you know charismatic centrist messiah, um, and it didn't work. You know it it didn't work. So um, you know I uh, I think that that's a formula they're going to keep uh, they're going to keep trying. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that it can't work uh, in the sense of, you know, you can have uh, you can have an election where uh, you you win, you might, you, you know, it, it's not to say that every election is going to be 2016. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of getting people to fundamentally reinvest in, uh, you know, a dying political and economic consensus, uh, I, I don't see how it can be done. Yeah, no, I, th I think I think that's exactly right. And one sees it in. I think uh, internationally um, in the sort of uh, figures um, that have won with this formula, but are now like in office mainly through negative partisanship that people, you know, uh, hate and fear the far right uh, so much that they will continue to support Trudeau or Macron. Uh, if one looks at those recent elections, um, uh, it seems like uh, they were purely negative campaigns. Uh, and and so that does, uh, you know, I think that adds a lot of credence to your thesis that this is a dead center. It's a zombie politics that's still like moving around and doing stuff, but has, you know, 
no real brain and no real uh, future. Um, uh, and that might be a good place to kind of like uh, end this at. Uh, as always, you know, we're kind of stuck between an old world that's dying and a new world that is uh, still struggling to be born. Uh, I would encourage all listeners to uh, uh, pick up uh, Luke's book. Uh, it's very interesting, very fun, uh, a lively political writing, um, but also works as a book. I think it has like a sort of an argument and a through line that really crystallizes as you read it. Thanks so much, Jeet. This was fun. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 